All right. Psalm 3, if you are using one of the few Bibles we have under your chairs, it is on page 448. All right, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Selah. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its consistency, for how congruent it is, for your psalms that point us to Jesus And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for his sacrifice on our our behalf. Thank you that we have a relationship with you and that you hear us when we call. Father, I ask that you would, would speak through your word, that we would learn more about Jesus as, as a result of this time together. So I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So, there is some important background to go with the fact that it begins, like, a lot of psalms have some ambiguity as far as, like, the occasion upon which they were written. Fortunately, I took the lazy route, and I went with one that has direct correlations. So, um, what happened, though, is you guys have been spared many extraneous details. I tried to regale my wife with all of these details, and she said, you're going to have to cut a lot of that out. That's not helpful. And I thought, thank you. I am thankful for her for many reasons, because I need to be told, "Mm, don't say that. So we're going to give you some background, because uh, it begins with a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, that's going to take a whole lot of details. Why David, who, if you were here two weeks ago, we were, it was brought to our attention, and I think most appropriately, that even old David was Liam Neeson from Taken, so he can handle it. But what we're looking at here is he is running from his son. So what is the context in which David, the king, is running from his son? So we got to take back quite a ways. So for the most part, I want to say most people are familiar with David and Bathsheba. But I'm going to give you most of the story because while it has made its way into popular music, I don't know if it gave you all the details. So, David, um, and you can look this up in 2 Samuel 12, but David, um, in the spring, in the time when kings go to battle, didn't go to battle. He sent his boy Joab, who Joab will play a really significant role in all of this, and I would say he is the Jafar to David Sultan. He gives a lot of advice that I'm like, it's a bad guy. So, 
he sends Joab, and they go out. And while David is not where he should be, he should be out where kings are in battle. But he's at home. He's hanging out on his roof. He sees the neighbor lady taking a bath on the roof. I don't get all the details, but he then invites her over, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, one of the important details that I think sometimes gets omitted is the fact that Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. Like, she wasn't just some lady over there. I'm pretty sure they knew each other. Like, uh, Uriah is actually the last listed in David's mighty men. There were 37 of them, so I'm pretty sure David knew his mighty men pretty well and their families. And so he says, well, let's, let's have her over. And then David sleeps with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is how she is referred to in pretty much all the Bible, including but not limited to the lineage of Jesus. So what happens a- after that is she's pregnant, and David is like, I have to cover this up. So he invites Uriah back home. And his hope is that he will go home. But Uriah doesn't go for that. He knows that at this time, that's not the time to go home and be comfortable. It's not time to just hang out on your roof. It's time to, to be in war. So he doesn't go home. What he does is he sleeps outside of the palace to watch guard, like to keep watch with everyone. And David's like, what are you doing? So what he ends up doing to, to cover up this whole thing is he sends Uriah out to the front and he gives orders that send him to the worst place where they're fighting and uh, pull everyone back, which I don't know why everybody goes for that, but they go for it because the king gave the order. And so that's what happens. And subsequently thereof, Uriah is killed in battle, which makes sense. No one's that good. So he goes, and then what happens after this is Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, and he tells him a story. And in the story, um, it pretty much is a parable that reflects the exact same thing that happened. And David is like, well, we need to, whoever did this, we had to kill that guy. And Nathan is like, no, it's you who did this. So what ends up happening is right after that, Nathan says, and it's really important to get, I'm, I'm going to quote him exactly on this, um, in Second Samuel 12, 11 through, or, yeah, 12, 11 through 12, and I'll just read it to you. Um, but it says, uh, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now, we know, because it's, I, I would say, it's been talked about a fair amount, that this is the result of Absalom coming after him. But there's some extra details in there that all come to fruition, and it's kind of amazing that all of that comes together as it does. So we're going to fast forward a few years. Um, so we know of Absalom, and he chases down David. Absalom's sister, her name is Tamar. Now, their half-brother, Amnon, finds Tamar very attractive, and he sets up a whole operation, and you can read about that on your own, um, but what he does is he ends up raping his half-sister, Tamar. So Tamar 
goes to her brother Absalom and he's like, don't worry, I'm going to help you out. David, his response to this is anger. I get that. I get being mad about something like that. And no action. He doesn't seek God, which I would encourage that behavior in such a confusing situation because I get it. Who would know what to do in that moment? Like, do you kill your son? What's, what's the recourse? But he does nothing. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't seek counsel. None of that's addressed. Then, two years later, Absalom throws a little party, invites all of his brothers at said party, kills Amnon. So he exacts his revenge there, and he flees. He gets out of there. David, his recourse is he's a little mad, he's a little sad. That's it. We don't get any other details other than that. So we know that David's not taking action. Again, he's not seeking God because I wouldn't know what to do in this situation. I'm no better nor no wiser than David, so I, don't, I wouldn't know. But neither does he, and he doesn't seek God on this. He just gets mad. Absalom goes away for a long time. So Joab tells David, you need to bring Absalom back. So eventually, two years after this, Absalom comes back, but then nobody talks to him for several years. And in, in fact, his land butts up against Joab's. And uh, what happens is Absalom tries to get David's attention, or he wants a meeting with David, and he wants Joab to set it up. So Absalom sends a messenger to David and sa- or to Joab and says, "Hey, you need you need to set up a meeting." But nothing happens. Then he sends another messenger, no response. Then, I mean, my next course of action: burn the guy's crops, and that's what he does. So Absalom, because their lands are right next to each other, he tells the servants, "All right, he's got some barley. Let's light this place up." So he does. And then Joab's like, what are you doing? And he's like, what are you doing not let me talk to David? So they get together. And all we know of the meeting is in this meeting, David kisses Absalom. We don't know if they made up. We don't know anything. In fact, I'm fairly confident it was insufficient for Absalom because everything that follows is no good. Absalom, a few details that the Bible tells us that we need to know. One, Absalom is a handsome fella with some beautiful thick hair. It, it plays an important role in his life and the end of it. We also know that he's, um, so he's kind of a, a smooth talker. So he's back. He sets up camp outside the gate of the city. And what he does is um, people come and they want to bring things to David. And Absalom's like, guys, guys. He doesn't have time for you. I know, I know, it bothers me too. And I'm bothered for you because I'd love for him to hear your problems, so tell him to me. And who doesn't like telling their woes to a caring, handsome face? I would. And so they tell him all of their woes, and he's like, we need to come to some sort of resolution. So he gets everybody, he gets the favor of everybody. Then he gets a band of warriors, then he decides to get, like, 200 politicians. Then he stages a coup, and this is his move. So David, he just runs. He's in a hurry. He leaves 10 of his concubines back at the palace because he's like, keep the place looking good, and then he runs to the wilderness. So 
I know it was a long time, and I tried to make it interesting for you, but this brings us all the way to Psalm 3. So, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Here it is. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So, of course, he thinks this. Like, your whole country is against you. And even though not everybody was, like, while he's on the road, people stop and they, like, one guy gives him a bunch of stuff. One of his advisors comes and he says, I'm going to be with you. And David says to the advisor, you stay here and maybe some of your bad advice is going to be a benefit to me. So, like, he's not saying you give bad advice, but give bad advice and maybe it'll help me. Um, but then he meets plenty of enemies. In fact, on the road, there's a gentleman by the name of Shimei the Benjamite who just starts chucking rocks and sand at him, and he's like, you're the worst. You stink. You had this coming. This is God's punishment to you because you're a man of blood. Like, yeah, you did this. And so if David's going to write a phrase like, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. He, he literally heard that phrase. I've never heard somebody say that to me in my life. David had somebody say, no, there's no hope for you. There's no salvation for you. Like, Shimei is like, you deserve every last bit of this. So they are, people are literally saying of his soul, there is no salvation for God in you. Um, but, and I think that this psalm is the culmination of realizing his failure for the past several years in never seeking God because he's finally doing that because he's now turned from that and he's turned to God and he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I mean, he really got hit with rocks. So he, when he's saying, like, you are a shield about me, I think he means far more than just physical. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. So he finally realized, like, David has, has done up to this point in his life, and did far more than I'll ever do. He was way better than I'll ever be. And so, um, like, I would stand no chance in a battle. And uh, David, in a day, killed 200 Philistines. So I'm pretty sure he could hold to, like, what he's done. He could be like, I did it all. I'm the man. I'm super tough. But he's not. He says, the Lord is my shield. He is the one who protects me. He is the one that, that keeps me safe, that I can rely on, even while he's running, and he's running from people trying to kill him. And he says, you are my glory. His trust is that God is his highest accomplishment. It's not anything that he's done. He had a palace. He had plenty of things going for him. But in the midst of this, the one thing that didn't change is that God is his glory. So he could have reveled in the fact that he was in the palace, and that could have been it for him. But he didn't. He's not saying that, and he's not, he's not just being down on himself. He's saying that, that God is his glory, and that doesn't change. Everything about your current station in life will change at some point. No matter what it is, whether it's the greatest thing you've done or the worst thing you've done, or you don't want to be where you are right now, if God is your glory, it is, he is static. He is, he is our highest accomplishment and the lifter of my head. And now that's 
that's also a really literal thing that he did. So while he's, he's walking, at one point he's, he's going up the Mount of Olives, actually, and he removes his shoes and he covers his head and he is just weeping. Um, he's weeping and he's praying. And so if he's saying, God, you are the lifter of my head, he means that because there is no other way to be when walking with your head covered weeping other than your head down. So he is trusting that God is the one who lifts him up. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Again, we have a very literal place where that takes place. So um, in 2 Samuel 15, 31, right after he's, he's weeping and walking, he says, God, thwart the advice. May Absalom hear terrible advice. And then in 2 Samuel 17, 14, that happens. It ends up that uh, Absalom receives really good advice as far as like one of David's former advisors gives him advice. And the advice is um, to just run him down right now and say, he's really tired, make your move. But then the other advisor who was like, hey, I want to follow you, and he's like, no, go back, maybe you'll give him bad advice, says... What are you thinking? Trying to run David down. He's the man. He will kill you and everybody with you. Don't do it. And so Absalom's like, I'll go with that advice. I am not going to run him down. So his, the good advice that would have been the end to David was quite literally thwarted. And so he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Which is also really good to, to read that because to this point, David hasn't been crying out to God. He's just been doing his own thing. He's been trying to figure it out on his own and clearly not doing it well. So I lay down, verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. He is in the wilderness on the run for his life. I have been camping, not running from anyone, and I cannot say easily, I awoke and the Lord sustained me. I think... This is the worst. But David, in the midst of all this, says, I, I slept because I trusted in the Lord. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Again, he's just trusting in the Lord. At this point, he doesn't know fully the outcome of any of this. He knew that these things would happen. This was prophesied to him, that a sword would rise up from his home. Like, and the, the extra details, all of those come to fruition. Where it says your wives will, will be given to the other in the sun, well, that is something that Absalom did. The ten concubines he left, he slept with on the roof of the palace as a statement to all to say, I'm the king now, everybody. And so this, this all happens, and there's no promise after that. There's just these things are going to happen, and David, like, and that's one of the things that, that we can see, is we, we know that there are consequences for our actions. In our lives, there, there are going to be consequences. The beauty is there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we don't have to suffer the, we don't have to suffer the wrath of God, but there are consequences you have to live through. And David had to live through those consequences, but he still could have sought God, and he finally does. So he says, Arise, O Lord, Save me, O my God, for you, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth 
of the wicked. So he's calling on what God has done for him in the past. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So, um, he knows that salvation comes from God, period. He's, he trusts that the Lord is his salvation, and he, he wishes a blessing for the people. And one of the ways that that manifested was the Levites want to go with him, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, and they're like, hey, we're coming with you. And he's like, nope, I'm going to have you guys stay back, because if the Lord would restore me, then he'll have me back, and if not, well, then I die out in the wilderness, so take that back to the city because he cares about the people. And what's, I mean, but his enemy in this context, you, I, one would say, is his people because they're coming after him. But he wishes a blessing on these people. And so um, I think there's a lot of ways that this applies for us. Because um, w- when we look at this, so we've gone through. I've given you the historical context And this has a lot of meaning for me because it talks all about who God is. So if we look through in these short eight verses, we know that he is our salvation. He is our shield and protection. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our heads. He hears when we call. He sustains us. He makes it that we need not fear. He will crush our enemies and he is the source of salvation and blessing. So, all of that to point back to the fact that Jesus, in Luke 24, says that he is the fulfillment of the Psalms. The Psalms point to him. So this points to Jesus. And I'm excited to show you how. Um, One of the things that's important, because this means a lot for us, but before... I go too far. I want to spend a few details because this talks about enemies and this talks about our foes and bashing teeth in and stuff like that. And so how does that apply to us? What do we do with that? Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize is what Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12. And I will will read that for you. You can turn there if you want, Ephesians 6.12. But it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemies aren't people. Like when we read that and we want to apply that to our enemies, that applies to us because our enemies aren't people. Because of Christ, we don't have a people group that is our enemy. I mean, we we want to say that, but if that's the case, then Paul was completely without hope because He was responsible for getting Christians killed. He did that. But he wasn't. He was redeemed. So there is no one who is beyond redemption. There is no story that is complete yet, so long as as folks are living. And so when we say that, when we say, crush to the teeth of my enemy, well, our enemies are sin, the flesh, and the devil. And those things are happening. As far as our sin, Jesus had victory over sin and death. So he did crush those teeth. When it comes to the flesh, we are being sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. So he is changing that in us. Sometimes it is kicking our teeth in. And then, of course, we know in Genesis 3 that 
the serpent would bite his heel and he would crush his head. Well, there's some teeth in that head and they're getting crushed. And so we know that Jesus will have victory over all of that. And so let's, let's look at, at Psalm 3 with that in mind. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Uh, the more I know Christ, the more I know my sin and the more it's there. Like, I had my pet sins that I thought, if only I could overcome. And then when I overcame, I was like, oh, I'm so much worse than I ever knew. But the beauty is Christ is so much better than we ever knew. So there is that complete, you see both of those things. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Isn't that right? If our sin is our enemy, how often does our sin make us say there is no salvation for us in God? That you're without hope because you sinned. But that's not true. There is no statute of limitations upon which you have to wait to go back to God. You are entirely forgiven because of Christ's finished work on your behalf. And so you don't need to wait for the time to be right or for you to feel better because that's your flesh telling you uh, there's no salvation for you in God yet. You got to earn it. But you don't. It has been earned for you in Christ. And so, um, and then of course, the devil's saying, there is no salvation for him in God. That is, that is the thing. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. We can trust that God will protect us. And he will protect our souls and he will keep us. He will finish the work that he has started. Um, my glory and I talked all about this earlier, but that is, I think, one of the greatest parts is if Christ is the greatest thing that we've accomplished, if trusting in Christ is the pinnacle of our lives, then when things go awry, you can fall back on that. And when things have not yet gone awry for you, that is the time in which you should lean on Christ because when they do, and they will, I think we've all heard that and we think, I'm ready. Well, there are... There are calls you will get at times you least expect to give you news you never wanted. And so in those times, you have nothing to go on but to trust that Christ is my glory. He is the lifter of my head. So I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He, he hears us. He hears us when we call. He heard David when he called. He, he will never leave us nor forsake us. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. And this morning, we sang some things to that effect. Um, if you guys were here last week, we had Jerry Howard, and he's the best. And uh, we, we all got to hang out at the, the Campbells on, on Thursday, um, and they got to tell us a little bit about what they have been up to. And while they were talking, um, a question was asked, and Sarah gave an answer that I was like, that's so right. Um, she said that it's easy to be lazy, but it's hard to rest. And I thought, oh, that's so good because I want laziness to be my rest and it never is. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I want to watch The Office for the 18th time and for it to be my rest and for when, when I am done to take on the woes of this world. But it turns out it doesn't really work. It, it is insufficient, but Christ is sufficient. He is at rest. He hears us when we call. We can seek him in, in times when we need rest. Um, 
So I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So we can trust God for that. He is going to crush our enemy. He is he has defeated sin. We need not sin anymore. We are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We we don't need to give in to sin. That is something that is um Dan has brought to my mind on many occasions as a reminder. You don't actually need to sin. There are times where our flesh is like, I've got to. I didn't get enough sleep, and so my proper recourse is impatience with my children and all around me. That's not the case. The Lord sustains us. That is sin on my behalf when I am like, what are you doing? That is not the response. And so it turns out I spend a good majority of my time confessing that sin to my children and saying how sorry I am. Um, and thankful to God that they are both gracious and he is gracious because my sin is against that. It is against him, not just them. So you, you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord and in no other. Jesus is our only salvation. We have no other salvation. If he is not, we are without hope. Your blessing be on your people. And so, for me, this, this psalm has meant a lot. I actually wanted to, I was given the opportunity to, to preach, and I wanted to preach on this psalm because it, it meant a lot to me. Recently, I've uh, realized i got to go back through some psalms because um, I, I would say I'm emotionally stunted. And so, reading all the mys and me's and outcrying to God is something I need. I need to see that that is a thing that we can do. Because I love like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes where it can be cold and sterile and I can say like, yes, I had this coming. When everything goes wrong, I deserve it. I deserve this punishment. But it's awesome because David, he, he could say these things and he could say, I got this coming and I'm just going to take my lumps. But he cries to the Lord and the Lord hears him and he saves him because the Lord is our salvation. So we are going to, take a moment and transition to the Lord's Supper, and we get to remember that the Lord is the one who saves us. We have uh, the bread and the cup that Jesus gave as a reminder, and he said, um, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was broken, and his blood was poured out that he would be our salvation, that he would be our hope, and he would be all that we need as our glory. And so we get to take a moment, and we get to uh, to thank God for that, that he is our rest, that his work is complete. And we get to, to celebrate that together. And so the Lord's Supper is for uh, anybody who has put their faith in Christ. You don't need to be a, members, uh, a member of Believer's Church. Anybody who, is, who has put their trust in Christ is welcome to join us. And we'll just take a moment and, and pray and focus on the Lord. And then um, when you are done and ready, come on up. And then afterwards, go back to your seat and we'll sing some songs. So I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you are our glory. You are the lifter of our heads. We, we don't need to just look in on ourselves, but we can look up to you, that you have provided us salvation in Christ, 
that you have provided forgiveness, that you hear us when we call. Thank you for a time to celebrate that together. Thank you for Jesus more than anything. I pray these things in his name. Amen.